This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we are interviewing Dr. Tamara Duperval Brownlee, Chief Health Officer for Accenture, a physician leader with 20 plus years of experience in practicing medicine and serving in various healthcare leadership roles that focus on optimizing the physical, mental, and financial health and well being of communities. Dr. Duperval Brownlee is fiercely determined to create and implement strategies for people to thrive to live healthy and well. And she has throughout her career served as a champion for providing high quality healthcare and advancing health equity that has impacted thousands of lives. And in recognition of that work, she was recently named by Modern Healthcare as one of the top 25 women leaders in 2021 and one of the top 25 minority leaders in healthcare in 2020. Eric, it's so easy to see it. Our listeners are going to be able to pick up on this really quickly, why she's so successful and why she's recognized as a leader. Three key points that stand out to me in our conversation with her. She brings to life that axiom of giving is its own reward. And you'll hear it referenced a few times throughout the conversation. She talks about the fight to be able to do what we know works best. And then the leadership principles that she discusses of empathy and empowerment. It's just such a meaningful conversation. I know our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Tamara Duperval Brownlee as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Tam, it's so great to reconnect with you. Can you believe that it's been seven years since we went through Leadership Austin together? Best class ever, right? Indeed, best class ever, and it doesn't even seem that long, Eric, so it's really great to reconnect. Well, it's, it's truly an honor, and it's so great to be speaking with you today on the Race to Value podcast. I have so much admiration for what you've done as a national leader in population health, and I can't wait to hear your perspective on some of these very important issues impacting this movement to improved health equity and value in healthcare. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to get to know you a little better, and I believe in our Leadership Austin days, we called it the walk and talk. 
it's an opportunity to better understand the person behind the professional. And as a professional, you have a such a strong patient-centered approach to medicine with a special interest in women, children, and underserved populations. And that's been informed by your background and upbringing, as I understand. You're a first-generation Haitian-American, born and raised in the South Side of Chicago. You were brought up with a high sense of appreciating faith, culture, family, and giving. And one of the most important, if not most important person in your life is your mother. She was an immigrant from Haiti who laid a great foundation for you to pursue a career in both health and medicine. And I, as I understand, she provided you with a servitude perspective in your leadership of others and how you approached a career in medicine. And I'd like to start our conversation today on this important concept of servant leadership. It seems that the goal of many leaders is to get people to think of them more highly as an individual, but the goal of a servant leader is really about empowering people through the selfless expression of service. And Tamara, you definitely have a servant's heart when it comes to leadership. So for my first question, I just wanted to ask you, for those out there listening to this episode, what advice can you give them about how to approach servanthood to better lead their teams in this race to value? And can you also speak to the influence of your mother and instilling within you this important leadership philosophy? Absolutely. Thanks for the question, Eric. And hello, everyone. I think with respect to the journey of leadership, it is certainly that. I think everybody who gets into leadership, either by volition or, or being compelled and pulled into it, there is certainly a charge and a destination of wanting to ensure that you're producing, you're actually delivering on the outcomes that you're charged with, and certainly that the people that you're leading are able to grasp the vision that you've cast and do it well. I think what happens in the journey of a leader, though, um, no matter what your motivations are to lead, is that the pressures of sometimes the things we're asked to do that should be big and hairy and audacious get to the better of us. And the prevention, I would say, is always to take a look at what you're trying to accomplish and think about what truly are the tried and true levers to get there. For me, the journey in leadership came at a point of crisis, um, and almost all my leadership roles have been that way, where someone was uh, very dramatically exited from their role, and I was able to be there to step up. And what was clear in all of those instances was that I wasn't necessarily the smartest person, the person with the most experience, but I certainly did have some gumption to want to get the thing done. And I tried with carrots and sticks, you know, at some point to move people. And especially my first role where I was leading people who had been practicing medicine clearly 20 years more than I had, I realized I wasn't going to work. And, but when I actually met them at the point of their need, to understand where were we going as a medical group, for example, what did a new era in healthcare delivery mean for them, security in their roles, opportunity for advancement. Then I was able to get the results. Then I was able to see greater production, greater engagement, more ideas coming. So I guess my advice to those in leadership now and wanting to embrace servant leadership is that don't let it be the last thing you try. The models of servant leadership are so many, but I can't, I think about those leaders, be it in our, our country and healthcare, medicine, even other industries, a common trait 
that describes their success is their ability to invest in those that they are leading and those that they are working alongside. It just means stepping out of yourself and really having the focus be on those you're with. My mom was particularly think critical for me in that being, as you mentioned, an immigrant from Haiti and really needing to learn, you know, culture in the U.S. and how to navigate. She realized that for a lot of things, the way to be able to get things done was better with honey than salt for one. And, um, and secondly, that in giving, we didn't have a lot of resources growing up. But in giving, even if if it was a dollar, you know, or five dollars, there was so much that was a reward for us as givers as it was for those we were giving to. And over the years, I tested it over and over and over again. And I can't say that there's been any instance where I felt like I gave and it was in vain. Even in instances, Eric, where I felt like serving and giving the resources I gave may not have been used as I thought maybe they should have been used, but it wasn't ever about that. It was really more a test of, you know, what was I willing to do, especially if there was a cost for me. So I'm very grateful for my mom modeling that for me. And, and even all these years later, she's now 76 and still working in healthcare. She continues to teach me. You've become nationally recognized for your leadership and collaborating with partners across the industry and, and the nonprofit community to advance community health improvement initiatives with a particular focus on health equity. And as we think about caring for those that are most vulnerable in our society, we need to ensure health equity by reducing disparities in care among different populations as a result of institutional racism. And at this moment in time, we have two historical events clashing together at once. We've got the catastrophic public health crisis of COVID-19 and the pandemic, and we've got the plight of racial injustice in our society. It's obvious both of these events have really put a spotlight on health inequities within communities of color. And there's never been any period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to that of whites. Disparity seems to be built into the American healthcare system. Given your leadership commitment to transform the well-being of underserved and vulnerable communities, how should healthcare leaders be thinking about this issue of health equity to overcome the structural manifestation of racism that's all too common in medical care? And how attainable is that goal of delivering care to specific patient populations in an individualized, culturally relevant way? Thank you so much, Daniel. You've asked a powerful question that we may not even have time to fully address, but I think that there are some key points and certainly experiences that I have had working, especially in an integrated health delivery system that had a mission towards that end. I've been impressed by a few things. One is that as humans, as people on this planet, we almost don't need any more reminders, but the pandemics, as you described, of the COVID-19 virus spreading uh, like wildfire, as well as the social injustice pandemic, have really shown us how inextricably linked we are as people, that one can be in a fairly comfortable social bubble somewhere, juxtaposed to someone who's in the heart of a socially vulnerable community, and the pandemic is something that's extremely common. And to see 
the level of human suffering with illness and disease is no respecter of persons. It's common to us all. And I feel like in history, especially at this time, the moments where we see these kinds of strong overarching impacting circumstances or movements, when they come upon us is really the time for us to examine what we've been doing, how we've been doing it, and what are the opportunities to zoom in, specifically in the quest for achieving health equity for populations that have been made vulnerable, experiencing disparities and inequities. The coverage of what happened in the pandemic, I think, brought it really home to us. When we think about For example, when we were all on lockdown this time last year, just emerging from it this time last year, and thinking about the time we spent in our homes and not feeling safe, that there was a a strong core of people who were out there in the front line and considered essential for their work, from the mail carriers to the UPS, FedEx, Amazon delivery people to people in the front lines in the, in the hospitals. And they were facing such a tremendous risks and, and regrettably also suffering from the pandemic. You know, it, it brought it all to home where we could actually have some meaningful dialogue across racial, social, you name it, intersectional lines, unlike ever before. In healthcare, we had a pretty impactful reckoning as well as we started to take a look at our workforce, you know, the people that were working alongside, this kind of goes back to the the topic of servant leadership. In fact, how can we position ourselves as mission-minded to to care, for example, uh, for people who are vulnerable, if we couldn't take a look at the people we were serving alongside also experiencing the vulnerability as well? the wounds of racism, the biases that happen both overtly and covertly every day. And I'm extremely encouraged by the national conversation that we had from the leaders across major health systems to really have good dialogue about what this means and how we don't go back to what was normal before, but actually move towards the future. This last point I'll make is I also feel like that Given the topic of this podcast and this overarching dialogue of getting to value, unless we are at a place in healthcare where we are actually being specific to the focus of the patient or consumer journey in their various states of health and wellness, then we're always going to miss it. We've been comfortable and actually quite profitable in focusing on those who are well-resourced and comply and are insured and frankly appear uncomplicated, you know, save their conditions. But we're finding more and more that if we don't pay attention to those who are vulnerable and the pandemic kind of reveals that we all can be vulnerable at some shape or time then we're missing it. We actually miss the opportunity to innovate, to test and fail fast, but also gain fast as well, and really help close those gaps that we're seeing in conditions, in living, in actually thriving going forward. So overall, I think it's a powerful moment in history. I do feel like we'll get to a place where we'll see gaps narrowed. Certainly in my own personal work, I've seen the gaps narrow with the conditions that we were addressing in the treatment, but we still need to do the work. We still need to have intention. We still need to have plans that we're executing and not let it be issue of the moment, the year, but it be a part of how we work and how we do business, for example. 
if, you know, I'm a part of a specialty group, then I'm always going to need to know how all of my patients are doing and have that information stratified so that the tools that I can use to treat conditions, what I specialize in can really be optimized. If we all had a lens of equity, just think what we can do. Well, Tamara, I couldn't agree more. And I wanted to maybe explore this topic with you, this intersection of value-based care and health equity. It seems like over the last 20 years since this value-based care movement emerged, we've been so singularly focused on quality and costs and payment model structures, but it seems like health equity has always been something different. However, now that there's a heightened awareness of racial health disparities in our society, it seems like the tide is changing and there's discussions being had right now about re-engineering some of these pay-for-performance models to include health equity as a financial measure for success. Just last week, a CMS administrator, Chiquita brooks Lashur wrote a blog in Health Affairs, and she talked about how alternative payment models really need to tackle health equity so that we can better understand the social determinants of health through value-based care. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think we as a country can build the economic will to reorient value-based care policies through racial and health justice For example, should CMS require that all ACOs conduct disparities, impact assessments, and health equity reports to monitor institution-level policies that proactively reduce disparities? Should we be considering some sort of socio-demographic-based risk adjustment that takes into account race and poverty? I'd love to hear your thoughts just on how value-based care and health equity really come together to create the right incentives for industry to, to really address this important problem. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I love this question because I think it activates certainly things that are missing to help inform whether or not there should be prescription towards that end. But there are a lot of great things that are being done, I think, to even activate more awareness and more action towards that end. In your comment, three things kind of popped to my mind. One is the importance of actually having leaders that are not only exceptional in understanding the complexities of payment models and all that's being asked from addressing quality and how reimbursement works and the like, but also looking at the landscape of America. And particularly Ms. Brooks, I think she brings exceptional insight to her role at CMS to really compel the argument that if there is an intention or if there is a measurement um, that is required at the very least, and then performance at its best towards considering equity, then there isn't strong incentive for systems to be able to do it. I don't know that I would go on record to say that absolutely you should have measures for X that everybody should do. And it's not because I'm opposed, but I think it's actually figuring out what are those. And this is something that I wrestled with in my last role is what are in fact the true measures of health equity that can be assigned to a population. And my concern about being very prescriptive now is what we do. You know, we, we hang our hat on the latest breakthrough, the thing that is generating a lot of ingenuity and business. And then we kind of forget that there's so many dimensions to how 
people achieve health equity that we go a step forward and almost take three steps back. I'll give an example for social determinants of health is one. I believe that knowing, understanding social factors that impact populations is critical. I love this framework that I saw out of a group from UCLA that talked about using social risk and social targeted or informed care in addition to the you know, community engagement as well as strategic investment to really help move communities and get them towards wellness. Problem is, is we stop at the social risk part. We stop at social determinants and we create a lot of energy around it. Let's collect it. Let's analyze it. Let's create platforms and referrals. Um, but at the end of the day, we still struggle because how do we solve for housing? How do we solve for healthy foods? And certainly there are demonstrations, but I know I've, I've felt challenged that there are drops in the bucket. I say that because I think that certainly we need more health equity services research so that we can understand what those measures are. I think it's probably par for the course now that people are looking at social determinants of health at the very least and collecting that information and stratifying their patient data by race, ethnicity, and language, sexual orientation, gender identity. And that should be standard and rope, but we shouldn't stop there. I feel like if we are able to, for example, create and generate good measures of thriving, almost like patient reported outcomes being used in orthopedics now, that we may actually get to the heart of it and understand how resources are being spent so that we can actually achieve equity in healthcare. There's a lot to be done in this particular space, and I'm really encouraged and excited. And my, my hope is that we can actually bring more attention to the need for research that tests these measures that are actually delivering the outcomes that we hope to see. You brought up a great point. And as we think about this problem of, of Black Americans and other demographic groups who are suffering in disproportionate numbers from health conditions like heart and lung disease, diabetes, immune deficiencies, and obesity, you know, you mentioned that healthcare is not the only factor. The gestalt of population health is really determined by social determinants. And the premise that 80 to 90% of a person's health is ultimately determined by these social factors and environment is so profound and challenging reality for us to consider. When you think about the zip code in which you live having more impact on your health than having access to healthcare services, the implications on health equity is huge. Since African-American, Hispanic, and Native American communities have long experienced these white gaps in household income and household wealth, there's so much to address in the SDOH space as you've given us preview to the access to quality education, employment, housing, transportation, and nutritious foods, all of these can influence the well-being of a community more than the delivery of the healthcare services that are being provided. I'm interested to hear more about this topic. Can you share your experiences as a clinician and leader in addressing these invulnerable and underserved communities? It really comes down to asking the question, why? I started my career in medicine on the west side of Chicago, treating wonderful communities that were under-resourced for care. And I knew clinical medicine, you know, fresh from my training, but I was disturbed, baffled, and went through a range of emotions in trying to understand that despite this great advice I was giving, we did a lot of work to get medicines to people, navigating, being able to get to specialists, that they were still 
facing the same problems over and over again. So I started asking why, what's going on? And I would actually just talk to my patients and just have frank conversations. And it would go something like, Hey, Ms. Jones, thanks for coming back. What's going on? You know, you're numbers are still looking the same. I see you haven't been able to pick up your medicines. What's going on? Why are we seeing what we're seeing? And then pause. And as Ms. Jones felt that I was engaged, that she could trust telling the truth, I would hear her concerns. I would hear that, you know, Dr. Duperval, you're right, but let me tell you about what's going on with me. And, And Mrs. Jones is a composite of many patients She could have been a woman who was in a very troubling relationship where there was at times threat to her physical person and her child, but she felt like she couldn't leave because if she left, it meant she was unhoused. And trying to save her resources so that she could get out to and have livelihood on her own, it meant sacrifices. It meant she couldn't get her medications or because she was so stressed over her circumstance and her life. And it's so multidimensional because of course there's family, there's relationships. No matter what I did, it wasn't going to get to her feeling like, let me go to the pharmacy, pick up my medications, walk three times a week and do all these other things. So in asking why, then I started thinking a lot more, well, why don't you have those resources? Why can't you leave? What can we do in terms of addressing housing for you? Why won't Medicaid pay for this? Why, you know, why, why, why? And in all of that, I started to learn a bit more about the structures of things and how the constraints that are being placed and even some of the structural biases and racism effects, you know, for where she lives, her ability to access certain things all had the significant impact on her. And you multiply that times 30,000 people that we took care of at our initial clinic, it becomes really impactful and overwhelming. So I started to then shift my attention while I loved helping to address the issues that presented day by day, visit by visit. I thought we should have people who understand this, who see this on a regular basis, who can articulate why the way things are right now isn't working to policymakers, to other persons with influence and power who have levers to making things change. So the next organization I went to, I did a lot more work in the way of advocacy and thinking about care models and demonstrations with CMS for how we could take care of populations since we had a significant level. We did more partnerships with our local academic health center because they had specialists to take care of our patients and they didn't really know what to do from a population health perspective for vulnerable persons. So we worked out a de facto care model with duct tape and plastic about how you take care of a vulnerable population that have needs that transcend what you can prescribe in medicine. And I think that's the curiosity that healthcare needs to have is why. I think so often it's, we we stop at Ms. Jones is a 37-year-old woman, non-compliant with her hypertension, diabetes, et cetera, but we don't know the rest of the story. And I think it's the rest of the story that can really impact us doing really good work, realize, frankly, savings in care that there's waste for sure in our healthcare system, but it's because we're not directing funds in the right way. And then third value. I mean, imagine taking a population of the Ms. Joneses that are described and doing something completely different. 
maybe it doesn't take a Dr. Duperval Brownlee to see patients, you know, day in, day out in addressing these issues, but I can be in a place where I'm taking care of the more complex individuals, develop a more integrated healthcare team that also includes mental health professionals. It also includes pharmacists and behavioral coaches uh, and the like navigators so that the various things that Ms. Joan needs to live healthy and well can actually be done. And, and that's the level of innovation that I saw even then. And I think on a larger scale, we can see coming through now. The only other thing I'd add is that today we have data on people like we never had before from the data we can get from their cellular devices to their wearable fitness gear to their shopping patterns, to where they're going for their meeting their basic needs um, and how powerful that could be um, to help more with predicting, you know, uh, future medical uh, needs being more proactive in that sense. And could be powerful, I think, even for vulnerable populations. Tamara, I'd love to maybe explore this a little bit further, you know, thinking about populations, having a more holistic view, you know, spanning the brick and mortar of the institution and really thinking about the true needs of a community and not being as reactive and responsive to patients coming to you to fix a problem that's manifested over the course of time. And, you know, as we look at delivering care in a more compassionate and personalized way to communities that really does leverage data. It's aligned with the the core tenets of value-based care and health equity. Uh, You know, I'm just left to wonder, you know, what does this mean for the future of hospitals? As care becomes more virtualized and procedures shift more and more into the ambulatory setting, I mean, hospitals are definitely going to have to think about right-sizing their services, maybe having fewer beds. They need to be thinking about addressing social determinants. They have to think about more than just the traditional you know, healthcare services model that they've been operating for decades on end. So I can really see the hospital of the future really being asset light. And I'd love to hear your perspective on where hospitals are going in the future in this advent of clinical integration with more emphasis on ambulatory care and consumerism. You know, what do you think that the the hospital landscape is going to evolve to in the coming years? I appreciate this question a lot because it was a part of my experience in, in the last role that I held in healthcare delivery. The straightforward answer is that I feel like the hospital of today will be extinct in the future. That's not to say that there won't be hospitals any longer, but I feel like more than ever, they will be specialized and focused in the type of care that they're providing to people. I think the pandemic showed that we do need capacity to handle when complex cases come through and persons with significant medical disorders and the like. So we still need that capacity, but I think more so than ever, the trajectory is to have hospitals that are the specialized delivery of care to address certain conditions and that it's part of a continuum of ambulatory care, which is a range now from ambulatory at one time just meant clinics where you saw your primary physician, but the ambulatory now also includes urgent and immediate care. It includes same-day hip surgery. It includes so much more. And I feel like I call it a reordering of the of the solar system where the hospital was the center and everything else were like little planets and meteors kind of orbiting around it. And I feel like the reordering is, is that the patient is really at the center 
center and all the other services, even hospitals are part of what's orbiting around it. So it means that if the patients needing to access healthcare system requires that they're at home, then you have hospital at home for them where they are ambulatory and can engage in immediate care services virtually or in person, then they can flex to those things. So hospitals will be with us, but certainly the behemoth of hospitals that we think about and know of, perhaps with the exception of quaternary academic systems, more and more, I think they'll go away. In in my former role, we had to transition a community hospital and it was a painful decision to make largely because we've been in the community for a very long time, over a century and a half, and primarily caring for people who were very vulnerable, you know, covered by CMS payers and the like. And even from a cultural, humble place was very sensitive to the needs of people who were of minority backgrounds as well as vulnerable. But what emerged out of it and and something I was really proud and and humbled to be a part of is transforming what it meant to be a patient-centered medical home for people. And it caused us to think out the box, literally, on how we deliver care from mobile solutions to virtual solutions. And the pandemic accelerated all of that for us. And it was a great test to see that, yeah, even in vulnerable communities, a community can still thrive without having yet one more hospital in the mix that has high overhead, high physical demand needs, and really deliver care to people where they are, uh, which is ultimately, I think, fulfilling on the good consumer experience, if you want to call it that. Tamara, I'm thinking about what you're suggesting with the new model of specialized care And as we think about the immense challenges of improving the health of our communities, we really have to do more regarding the mental health of our society. You know, right now, one out of five Americans, over 51 million people are living with a behavioral health condition. And there are approximately 20 million individuals in the U.S. with a substance use disorder. And 9 million people, or 4% of the population, have had suicidal thoughts in the past year. As we think of those with mental health or substance abuse issues, unpaid caregivers and minority populations are the most vulnerable. It's been stated that around 70% of primary care appointments include problems with significant psychosocial issues, and less than half of those primary care patients receive any mental health treatment at all. And further, only 43% of suicide victims had contact with their primary care provider within one month of their suicide. Our nation's long-standing mental health crisis has now been exacerbated by these societal stressors we've been discussing, the COVID-19 pandemic, the racial inequality, and now the need to treat mental health conditions is on the forefront in a way that it's never been before. And primary care is really the tip of the spear, I think. And so I'm hoping you can share with our listeners your perspective on how our country can achieve better integration of behavioral health in the primary care environment. Yeah, this is so critical. It definitely was a both a pain point and I think a place of needed innovation when I was practicing in medicine directly. And even now in my role in supporting the health and well-being of talented people all across the globe, it's significant to really understand and see and hear and witness the impacts of 
the pandemic, but even preceding the pandemic, just the challenges of just living in this world today and its impacts on people feeling well and, and being able to thrive. In primary care, the advantage we have is that because we take the time to understand the patients that come to us for care, we can often spend more time in doing that. We're able to quickly build bridges of trust, engagement, and mutual respect for patients that we care for. And often that means that not only are we treating the physical state that may be presenting more acutely and trying to manage the prevention, but we're also privy to understanding the pain points that also weigh on the dimension of behavioral and mental health as well. It was extremely frustrating and complicated and draining to be able to do all of that in, in a 10-minute visit with an individual. And I remember very clearly when one organization I, I worked with closely, we decided to change our model and have behavioral health professionals be a part of the primary care team co-bedded, co-located, it, it, it truly was a game changer, largely because the pain sometimes of being able to see a person who comes from medical care and then presents somewhat surprisingly with a behavioral health issue that could be near crisis or you're just underneath the radar is that we're often paralyzed in what do we do and how do we actually access resources quickly, efficiently, et cetera. But then we thought, what if that person was actually like right next door to me and had capacity so that, you know, I'll go back to Mrs. Jones. If she comes in and she's sharing with me that she's harming herself or has thought about harming herself, how can I connect her very quickly to someone who can evaluate a situation, de-escalate something and get her connected to cognitive behavioral therapy and even prescription in a timely way? Before that visit would take me an hour and 15 minutes, you know, which I don't have, which would make me behind and certainly not efficient in terms of how I do that day. But um, having that behavioral health professional right next door and we would have a relationship such that we could talk about our patients and co-create treatment plans with them understanding the nuance of their medical condition, me understanding the nuance of their behavioral health condition was a game changer. And this was over a decade ago. I'm dismayed that we're still kind of fighting to get there. Certainly the innovation of virtual care helps to bridge that gap a bit. But I think truly, if there is an intention about what the model looks like so that it is an integrated model, we're going to miss people. And unfortunately, the way our healthcare is set up, the only stop valve we have to address people is when they hit crisis and they present in an emergency department situation. I'm particularly sensitive to people coming through and living with the pandemic and how they're coping. In my current role, I'm seeing now just what those effects are looking like. And again, these are very talented, high-performing people, but just feel like the balance of life is really hard. And not to mention the months of isolation, the months of being disconnected from their work community, their home communities has really caused some irreparable harm for some. So 
looking forward to the future on what, in fact, are those solutions. There's a lot of proliferation of applications and digital solutions to help solve this conundrum. And I think that those are very important, uh, especially since we're limited in being able to be physically together to address this. But I, I feel like we can't stop with the digital solution or keep adding them because I think it, it actually could be compounding the problem. I don't yet know what the solution is, but I think at least for healthcare, we need to keep our foot on the gas and ensuring that our care delivery full stop is integrated. And we always have a lens, just like we were talking about equity before, we have a lens of equity and we have a, a lens of thinking about people holistically. <laughs> what I loved in my, one of my former jobs, is my CEO used to say, you know, last time I checked, the brain is not disconnected from the rest of the body. What's in the head drips down through the neck. So why do we segregate the mental and behavioral health needs of people from what's happening with them physically? And that's never more true than what we see today. Tamara, that's such a thoughtful response. And, you know, I was just thinking about so many things, but one thing that came to mind, you were referring to your practice of medicine years ago, and you would have these really complex behavioral health issues, and you didn't have enough time to really address those because of the way that the system was designed. And I can't help but think about this massive medical industrial complex that's driven by fee-for-service and, and how often primary care physicians are really feeling especially undervalued and they're relegated sometimes to the bottom of the physician cultural hierarchy and they were already feeling frustrated and marginalized and then you add a, a pandemic to the mix and providers of all kinds right now at this moment are feeling just such intense levels of burnout and even moral injury when it comes to the practice of their profession their true calling just given this national plight of physician burnout i, I just wanted to get your thoughts thoughts on maybe what our industry can do to ensure that physicians are more empowered to connect to those patients more altruistically, more holistically, less transactionally, like we've been accustomed to before. I mean, how can we better prepare physicians to deal also with the emotional toll of treating patients with serious illness, especially during this time of COVID-19? Yes. I, first, I would like to acknowledge my fellow clinicians, physicians that are, again, facing very difficult circumstances and treating people impacted by the pandemic and recognize them for their resilience, their fortitude, and especially for those that have been personally impacted and still keep going. They are truly heroes along with the ecosystem of all clinicians, nurses, advanced practice clinicians, therapists, etc. I, I feel like part of this movement of demoralization, if you will, of practitioners, and I'll anchor it to primary care since you mentioned it, has been long coming. And I think it's multifactorial. And I, I'm going to bring out these factors and, and pair it with what we can do to help support that. First is leadership. I appreciate it so much when I started my career that I was quickly put in a leadership position and I felt challenged by it at first. You know, I've kind of described in other settings how I was a bit of a reluctant leader because I didn't want the burden of feeling like I knew had to know everything to tell people what to do. And then I quickly learned that that's not what it, it was about. It really was 
having a shared and lived experience of the people who are doing the work and how to empower them to treat, to still be human beings, you know, when life throws them a curve as, as clinicians and still be able to address the needs of the population that we have. I mentioned that because on a macro scale, leadership of physicians by physicians is still missing in a lot of places. And in my conversations with colleagues, they feel like there is a, a suit in quotes, you know, that is telling us, you know, how we should practice, how we should do our day. I've got to see 25 people a day if I need to make my targets, you know, and there's such heavy financial commitment and burden that's detached with it that they feel almost disempowered to do all that they want to do. So let's address leadership. Let's make sure, and this is not to say that all leaders of, you know, healthcare delivery need to be physicians, but I do feel like a leader needs to understand what that experience is if they can elicit the help of those who are actually in practice and are champions to help inform the direction, then you'll do more to empower and not demoralize what's happening with physicians today. Secondly, I think is really leveling out and level setting who's a part of that care team. And this is not a new idea, but it's still not necessarily shared everywhere where I think an efficient team is one where you're able to kind of look at the needs of the people that are coming and almost appropriate the care by acuity to the highest level uh, certified person on the team. For example, if a person is coming in with acute respiratory infection, that could be seen by an advanced practice clinician and that care or overseen or not, you know, because some of our advanced practice clinicians are so expert at the care of people, they can manage that. And perhaps the person with the seven comorbidities and specialty care that's who the physician sees. And then that allows them to actually have more time to pay attention to the patient in front of them, to coordinate the care, et cetera. I also feel like on that point of coordination, we need to think about who else needs to be a part of that care team. I am such a fan of the model of having this category of person that I'll call Sherpa, but in, in, other, in many settings, they're called a navigator, they're called a community health worker, promotora, but it's someone or someones, you know, who are of the community that understand uh, and have a good cultural lens of your population that you're looking to serve. They are go-getters, they are resource-driven, and they are empowered to do the things that help people get better. And that helps to relieve that burden of everything needed to be anchored on a primary care physician. You know, I, I grew up in a time in training where it was said that the physician was like the quarterback of the team, but the key was that there was a team and that the team was not only doing their role expertly well, but they were acutely aware of everyone else's role on the team so that the team could win. Not about the quarterback, but it was about the team winning. And I, I think that parallel concept needs to happen right now. I think the pandemic will teach us a lot about that. I feel like we're going to see clinicians that are need to step away from medicine for a while to evaluate what matters most and, and frankly recover. I love the phrasing to that the, from the moral injury. And then finally, I feel like leaders need to understand that and respect that, that these are people, they're not machines that can produce widgets, but that's how they're treated. And I think once we understand that and that we bring compassion back for the caregiver, we can go far and we can make sure that we have whole people, whole leaders, whole clinicians treating populations. 
We've discussed a great deal about vulnerabilities in communities and the longstanding entrenched institutional racism toward African-Americans that's created disparities in health outcomes. The coronavirus pandemic has been part of this topic. As we've talked about, it's exacerbated health disparities even further, with African-Americans being three times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID-19 compared to their white counterparts and twice as likely to die from the virus. As we address the pandemic, it is of paramount importance that we really ensure equitable distribution of the vaccines. And the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that only 40% of African Americans have been vaccinated. And it points to an interesting revelation that many African Americans are distrustful of the American medical system. As a leader focused on health equity, can you provide your perspective on how we can better engender trust between the medical profession and communities of color? I want to comment about the percentage of African-Americans that are now vaccinated. I feel like that number is higher now. And certainly the waves of surges that we've experienced in our communities have impacted that greatly, as well as being able to shift from being a vaccine supply poor state to now a vaccine rich state. In my previous work, working on COVID-19 vaccines, distribution strategies, and equitable strategies to potentially vulnerable communities, we spent a lot of time really looking at what were the sentiments, what were the questions, what were the issues that came to mind for people, especially vulnerable communities, African-American communities, especially to getting vaccinated. And the findings were actually very interesting to me. And we called them vaccine hesitant. And in some instances that intimated that they were perhaps a little disinvested from health, but I don't think that that was the case at all. The better term I've heard used is uh, from Dr. Uh, Kismikia Corbett, who has been nationally recognized as one of the researchers responsible really for us having a efficacious vaccine today. She used the term of vaccine inquisitive. And I thought that it was powerful and probably a better description of where people were early on when the vaccine was made available and described, I think, the state and the sentiment of African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans towards the vaccine. Certainly, there is a strong documented history of systemic actions, policies that don't endear trust of the African-American community to health institutions and medical professionals. Often, Tuskegee is cited. But what I found interesting as we were surveying and doing focus groups of understanding the populations today and why they won't get vaccinated or just weren't there yet, it had nothing to do with Tuskegee. I mean, maybe they've heard of it. You know, if we're talking about millennials, young millennials, I should say, and, and Gen Yers, it was more really the detachment that people have from health institutions and health providers and not really feeling like they had relationships and that they were being heard when they had concerns about what's in this thing. How is it developed so quickly? I've heard about experimentations done. How do I know that this isn't an experiment that's being directed towards me? And certainly I think all of the things related to the alacrity of distribution and the framing of even the pandemic in the beginning didn't help in terms of people getting there. So we took all of that to say, okay, 
it's there. How do we bridge gaps? And I would say the most powerful leading practices that I've personally used and I've seen used by my very talented colleagues across the country is really getting to a place of having engagement and conversation. Regrettably, it happens in healthcare. I think we saw it in the political sphere as well. It's easy to assign a judgment against people who are on the vaccine inquisitive scale in any way, shape, or form. But I found that actually talking and asking the question, why? What do you need to know? What information can I provide? Does a great deal of building trust rather than shaming people into getting the vaccine. Also hearing that information, the truth, the science from a trusted source, and those trusted sources are their connected physician, our provider, if they have one. I think community leaders are really important, particularly in African-American community. It could be from houses of worship. It could be community leaders. It could be uh, even people in the private sector who've had impact in communities, people who are making change. And if you can use them to amplify the message, then it's accepted better. And it actually can help bring the vaccine inquisitive to a vaccine recipient down the road. Certainly I've used my platform being an African-American woman to be as transparent as possible, not use big $20 medical terms and really describe the processes, the science, and acknowledge you know, where people are in the spectrum. And I think more of that needs to happen in order to build the trust. The last thing I'll say is this work of establishing trust in vulnerable communities. And not all African communities are vulnerable or Hispanic communities or Native American communities, but certainly among those communities, the work of engagement is a long one. And that, that arc of community engagement is very long. And too often, healthcare's points of engagement are transactional at best, and fairly often when we need something from the community. So, for example, we're going to build a new tower in XYZ community and we need the community's approval, or we're going to change a footprint, or we're going to offer new services. And I think more often than not, we need to make the investment of what matters most to the community and addressing those solutions in good faith of building trust. It's hard for someone to have trust in an institution that won't see me if I present to the emergency department or don't understand that we're not healthy because we don't have a grocery store that is able to provide fresh food and, and easy access to what it takes for me to be healthy or healthy roads so that I could exercise outside. And even more so, I feel like the onus of building that trust is going to come with strategic investment from healthcare institutions and partners to say, no, we care, not only when you're sick so that we can realize revenue from that, but we have an investment also to your quest to being healthy. Well, Tamara, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. And you're someone that has really been an inspiration to me. I mean, the work that you've done and improving the health and well-being of communities and being a champion for high quality health care and advancing health equity. I mean, you've impacted thousands of lives and I've, I've enjoyed following you over the last few years since we initially met. And I wanted to get your parting comments on how do you define success? And I think about one of my favorite quotes is from 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it is uh, as follows, uh, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligence people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate the beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is to have succeeded. And so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you define success in your life and measure that? And for our, for those listeners out there, what would you give to them in terms of maybe some validation points to know that the service that they're doing for others and in healthcare is really making a difference in, in the lives of others? That's a wonderful question, Eric. And I wish I were as eloquent as Ralph Waldo Emerson, because I, I loved both the imagery and the truth in how he described what success is. For me, success is really feeling that I've lived authentically and that every gift, every skills that I've honed, every opportunity that I've been presented with to make an impact, be it one-on-one with a patient or one in a million as I'm looking to develop strategies to impact health and wellness that I took it. I sometimes fail. That's okay. I learned from it and I didn't waste my shot to do that. I can think of many times where I felt worn. I felt frankly burnt out, maybe a little demoralized and questioning, am I what I'm doing, making a difference? Who cares? You know, that this family physician, you know, seeing patients on the West side of Chicago, and I'm here eight o'clock at night, still charting, does it matter? And it comes back to me in kind of going back to what my North star is enabling people to live healthy and well. And if I can look back on that and use that as a marker with fidelity, and I keep growing, I keep honing, I keep using those gifts and skills, then that's success for me. It's never been a role. It's never been how much money I've earned. It's never been a title or accolades. And it it probably guides to how I live my life right now, which is humbly and still in a place of intense gratitude for everything that I've been given. And so to leaders out there, to practitioners in it, know that what you're doing matters, but set your sight and your North star on what's important for you and why you think you're on the planet. If you're practicing medicine, then part of your being here on the planet is to reach people and to ensure that they are informed with the information that they need to make wise decisions, that you are administering the right treatments and that you're doing it with compassion and care. So rest in that and be encouraged. Dr. Tamara Duperval-Brownlee, thank you so much for joining us in the Race to Value. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a great honor. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Daniel. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I agree wholeheartedly with Eric. It's been a pleasure.